0: Why has this text continued to change people's lives? Why should something that the apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians nearly 2,000 years ago um, speak to people today? I mean, what's the, you know what, what's going on? And I think if you don't introduce the divine dimension, say, well, uh, you know, this is God speaking. Um, to his people and his people are the same now as they were 2,000 years ago and um, you you end up with a problem I mean what you know what it, it's, you're actually saying the book doesn't speak to anybody um, or if it does it only you know it only speaks in a very sort of esoteric kind of way and I think this is what real theological interpretation is about
1: does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome
2: to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. If you've been listening to the Credo Podcast, you may have noticed that from time to time, I like to not just dig into theological uh, discussions, debates, controversies, doctrines that matter, but I also like to sit down, so to speak, with a, a theologian that you may or may not know, Uh, and discuss uh, their life, uh, their contribution to theology, some of the books they've written, but also uh, some of their thoughts on uh, the current state of evangelicalism. Today, we have the privilege of doing that with uh, a theologian that I know uh, many listeners uh, have read and and know well, and that is Gerald Bray. Uh, Gerald Bray is research professor of divinity at Beeson Divinity School, he is a minister in the Church of England, and you know him as an author from many books. Uh, it, some, of, some books that, uh, that I have loved and, and come back to again and again, even have my students read, uh, some of those include his Doctrine of God and the Contours of Christian Theology series, uh, his, his large volume called Biblical Interpretation, Past and Present, which is a, a, a excellent history of the history of, uh, of hermeneutics, and then also some more recent books, God is Love, a biblical and systematic theology, and then another large volume called God Has Spoken, a History of Christian Theology. Well, I could go on, but Gerald, thank you for coming on the Credo Podcast.
0: Well,
2: thank you for having me. Gerald, I, when I look at uh, you know, the many books you've written, I could, we could certainly talk about so many different subjects. And uh, I, I think having you on the podcast, though, is a, a unique opportunity, different maybe than uh, most other episodes, because you've not only written on a wide variety of theological topics, historical topics, but you've been, you've been active in uh, evangelicalism in a in a variety of ways. Maybe we could start by uh, going back some ways, maybe before even you started writing, and talk to us about. Uh, you know, we we think of you as a theologian, of course, but what theologians influenced you early on, uh, moved you to to say, well, I'm going to devote myself to. Uh, to a life of theological studies, and and perhaps you could even talk about, um, th- this is something that some of our listeners may not be aware of, uh, some of your early education, in which uh, you did, for example, a D.L.it at the University of Paris uh, Sorbonne. Maybe you could talk about what that experience was like.
0: <laughs> well, yes, you're, you're going back a long way, and it, it's, it's difficult <laughs> to sort of condense these things, you know, into a few minutes. Um, my early training was in classical studies, Latin and Greek, and uh, I was always very interested in what made intelligent Romans become Christians at a time when that wasn't fashionable and indeed was dangerous. Mm. Um, you know, how how was it that... that, that by the third century, the, the Christian Church had captured um, the intellectual high ground, if you like, in the Roman Empire, and that's really how I came into uh, theological study. Um, I, I worked on Tertullian and actually wrote a book on Tertullian, and uh, you know, trying to figure out why, what, what, what was it about Christianity that attracted him, um, and Of course, the more I did that, the more I could see parallels with uh, our own sort of neo-pagan society today. And um, that's really how it all started.
2: Now, it's interesting that you mentioned Tertullian because uh, Mm -hmm. your your engagement with uh, the fathers is... You've written Mm -hmm. on this in a number of different publications. Uh, You've even contributed to... Uh, series in, in, in which uh, the fathers have been translated and, and made available in a, yeah. in a more uh, accessible form um, when we talk about the fathers of course, that assumes either knowledge of greek or latin or both and i i don't think it's a secret that uh to others that you you know many different languages uh, you have mentioned greek and latin <clears throat> what other what other languages i think there's a, a number of others aren't there
0: Well, yes, I I suppose it depends what you mean by no. Um, I mean, as far as living languages are concerned, I can speak nine. Um, And I suppose I could read, uh, you know, upwards of 20 or so. Um, But that's been my early training. You see, I was brought up speaking English and French together. So uh, I had a good start, you might say.
2: And and would you say, I mean... That is, uh, well, to put it modestly, there's more languages than most the- theologians can speak or read, um, way more. How? how what I want to get at, though, is when you read any number of uh, primary sources, how uh, has your ability to read—I mean, I think you mentioned 20—I mean, how has your ability to read, I mean, I 20, I mean, ability to read theology and, and all these other languages, has that affected— uh, the way that you have read church history, the way you've developed your own theology. I mean, uh, for example, uh, many will read theology uh, from the Western Church, but it, I'm guessing if you can read 20 languages, that you're also able to read much of the theology in the East. Is that right?
0: Oh, yes. That's right. I'm i am one of the few people who is uh, equally conversant in Greek and Russian. Um you know there aren't many, <laughs> and um, yes, you're 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 right about that. Um, I think the, the thing is, it's, it's a discipline of its own, of course, and um, one of the things you have to do is, is theology. Uh, theology is really the art of defining your terms. Um, I mean, what exactly do you mean when you you know when you're talking about being or nature or is what you see when you when you uh, you know start with classical studies, how Christianity came along and actually defined things that previously had been out there, of course, and played around with by philosophers and what have you. But um, but nobody really knew what what they were, you know, they, they, or or at least they used words like being to mean almost whatever whatever they wanted. I mean, it wasn't focused on on a particular being or on a particular object. And of course, the the beauty of revelation was that Christians were dealing with a, with a God who revealed himself. And there's some things you could say about this God that corresponded with that revelation and other things that didn't. So you were dealing with a, a, you know, a defined subject as it were, and the language is affected accordingly. And um, of course, uh you know as you go along you find that um in the eastern world the, the emphasis the philosophical background and so on is very dominant in the western european world um the, the legal tradition of rome um latin tradition is much more um juridical in its in its approach and so you can be discussing similar things but um you know, in, in, through, with a different paradigm. And I think it's extremely important that people understand this that uh, very often we don't go down to the roots of our worldview, of uh, in our way of thinking, um, and therefore get wrapped up in discussions that wouldn't be necessary uh, if we understood, you know, where, where our presuppositions are.
2: Now, I can't help. But uh touch on this you mentioned how you are one of the few individuals who can read and speak I think um, not just Greek but but Russian uh is Ed? there is there a uh, a particular Russian uh stream of thought or theologian either past or present that uh that you've benefited from
0: uh, <laughs> Oh well, uh, I mean there are many great Russian theologians. Um, uh, you know, uh, they they tend to be all rather eccentric, of course. Uh, but I suppose the 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 greatest uh, Russian writer on the subject would have to be Dostoevsky. I mean, he wasn't a professional theologian, but um, he certainly, you know, dealt with the issues and got into the subject matter. Um, in a way which is very profound.
2: Now maybe this is, uh, I, I think our, re- our listeners can, can sense just uh, how unique this is because on the one hand you're conversing uh, nine living languages, you're reading about 20 or so uh, languages, yes. uh, and, and you're, you're interacting with, uh, with a number of uh, Russian thinkers, philosophers, theologians, but at the same time, uh, you are, uh, deeply rooted in the, uh, in the Anglican faith and, uh, which, which may surprise some, um, you're, you're, you're still committed to, uh, to those 39 articles, despite reading, um, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, and so on. Uh, one of, one of my favorite books you've written, one that I, I don't, Know that I've uh, seen others read it uh, as much as your others, but it's it's actually one of my favorites. Is the Faith We Confess, an exposition of the Thirty Nine oh, Articles. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I remember uh, preparing some lectures on the the uh, English Reformation and uh, coming across this book of yours, and it was just uh, so helpful in not just helping me understand the Thirty Nine Articles, but uh, their historical background. Now, now as a Anglican. Uh, how has uh, someone like Cranmer, or the Thirty-nine Articles themselves, or maybe the the Book of Common Prayer, how have these been instrumental in your theological, your own theological development?
0: Well, I think they've been instrumental mainly um, in providing a framework, uh, a framework which is. Um, the one rooted in, in, in doctrine and systematic thinking, uh, but also in worship. Um, you see, I mean, the, the, the great beauty of the Church of England, for all its many faults, um, is that uh, it came into existence as a Protestant Church, um, not because of any great commitment to, to a particular theological position, um, but you know, for for practical political reasons, I mean, when Henry VIII broke with the papacy, um, he created a Protestant church uh, with no Protestants in it, um, <laughs> and so uh, basically, what uh, the the church had to do with uh, people like Cranmer and so on uh, was devise uh, liturgies and devise uh, you know doctrine and all the rest of it. As teaching medium, I mean, the, the idea was to teach people the, the faith, um, you know, which, to which they were officially committed, but which they had no no conception of it, didn't know what it was really, um, uh, in detail. And today, of course, it's a different situation, but we've inherited this, and uh, it still provides a, a framework. It's, it, it, it's catechises, um, you know, turned into prayer, really. And um, and I think that's what what uh, what shapes me. Uh, first of all, the second thing is that um, it's always been a case of what I would call mere Christianity or basic Christianity. Uh, it doesn't seem to me to be an accident that uh, you know in the 20th century you had two leading Anglicans, C.S. Lewis, of course, who who wrote his little Mere Christianity and John Stott, who wrote Basic Christianity. Both of them runaway bestsellers. Um, the two men, you know, both Anglican, of course, and they um, they had a similar approach in the sense that we need to concentrate on the basics, on the fundamentals, and, uh, you know, get, get that right. Uh, and then the, the, the more peripheral questions um, can either be left to one side or else, uh, you know, fitted in, um, but without the same weight being given to them, and I think that's that's what has always attracted me. I mean, I'm not blind to the faults of the Anglican Communion. Please don't misunderstand me on that score. Um, but but this is what this is the positive side as I see it.
2: Very good. I mean, when we discuss uh, whether it's the Church of England, Thirty Nine Articles, Book of Common Prayer. Uh, any, any one of these, or, or maybe someone like Cranmer himself, um, this is, this is a, and when we think of Cranmer, for example, this is, uh, a th- theologian who, you know, as you just mentioned, uh, with Henry VIII, uh, there's a strong political, uh, motive, obviously, but, uh, Cranmer comes along and he is producing theological works. Uh, you think of the homilies, for example, which you recently have edited, uh, a, an uh, edition of, uh, and uh, not just those, uh-huh. but uh, whether it's the articles or the Book of Common Prayer, uh, one of the things uh-huh. I love about Cranmer is his ability to just move back and forth so seamlessly between uh, sometimes deep doctrines of the faith, difficult doctrines of the faith, uh, and and doxology. Uh, this this move yes. between theology and doxology is. I, I'm not sure anyone does it as well as Cranmer does, and uh, that's uh, and, and you've in, in many of your writings you've done that as well. Now you've also yes. you've also mentioned uh, or at least hinted at uh, some of maybe shortcomings and maybe the one that comes to mind. And this isn't unique to the Church of England, of course. Uh, many different Protestant denominations have, have been affected by Protestant liberalism. And, uh, whether we're thinking, you know, decades ago or maybe even the aftermath of it, whatever, or maybe it's ongoing presence, whatever it be, um, maybe you could address this for a second. How how can, um, you know, you're, you're rooting yourself in, uh, 39 articles, book of common prayer. Are these, is this a, a history, uh, that can still bring reform, um, uh, biblical doctrine back to um, to different churches individually, or maybe the church as a whole.
0: Well, um, I mean, it's certainly a foundation which is still uh, a living option. Um, you know, at least for those of us who are who are committed to it. Whether it's sufficient to bring reformation to the church, I don't really know. I mean. Um, you, you know, this is a work in progress and uh, I can't, uh, I, I can't really say, I mean, I don't know what, you know, what's going to happen. Um, I think that, uh, obviously it needs to be renewed. It needs to be restated, rephrased, uh, in ways that meet the needs of today. And we mustn't become mindless traditionalists. I think that's always a problem. Um, you know, people get fixated on on forms or, or of liturgy or something like that, um, but but it is a guide, and it is meant to be a guide to you know to, to stick with the basics, stick with the fundamentals, and of course the fundamentals are, uh, you know, that that God is sovereign, that we are sinners saved by grace through faith in Christ, who died for us. Uh, that his blood alone is, is, is you know, is, is the atoning sacrifice, um, and, uh, which justifies us, and so on. I mean, all these basic things, um, which of course come back and uh, are very central, um, you know, to the prayer book at worship, to the to the uh, the articles and so on. And uh, in that sense, I think they 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 remain valid. I mean. I'm hesitant to say they're timeless. I mean, that would be pushing things a bit too far, probably. Um, but, uh, but you know, there's something there that, that can inspire us for today. Um, I mean, we, we have been affected by liberalism. It's certainly true. Dealing with that is very difficult. Discipline, church discipline, has always been a problem. Um, you know, right from the time of the Reformation onwards, it's never really... Uh, function very well. Um, and, uh, you know, that's something we have to wrestle with.
2: Now, you've mentioned uh, already that you uh, have spent, even early on, uh, you've spent much time in the fathers. And, you know, we're talking about some of the reformers, some of the English reformers, mm-hmm. uh, individuals like Cramer. But if we go back to the fathers, uh, and uh-huh. whether it's the apostolic fathers or, or others that come after them, uh, there's been somewhat of a renewal of interest, uh, and I think that's a good thing. Uh, you've you've written um, a chapter, actually, in a book that that I've edited that is about uh-huh. to come out, or by the time people are listening uh-huh. to this, it will be out. It's called The Doctrine on Which the Church uh-huh. Stands or Falls, and it's uh-huh. a, a, a very comprehensive look at... Uh, at uh, justification, though by no means the last word. Uh, You've written the chapter in there uh, on the fathers and justification, which may be surprising to some people. Perhaps they've just thought that, well, justification is a doctrine that uh, is really associated with the Reformers. Maybe it starts with them. Uh, But you answer the question, well, did the fathers believe in justification by faith alone. Uh, how how do you answer that question?
0: Well, I think the answer is yes, of course, they did. Um, but they they expressed themselves in a different way because uh, the language, this is, again, a question of language, that when you start using words like justification, um, I mean, this is a term which, you know, shows a very obvious legal uh, uh, origin um it, it's a way of expressing our standing before God um in a in a, in a legal way you know in a in a, a, a way that would stand in a, in a courtroom or something like that and that's a, the fruit of a long sort of tradition um you know in the in the western church anyhow um but of course in 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 the early days of Christianity um things weren't weren't uh, classified in quite that way, um, and so what you, you have, I mean, you, people talk about, um, you know, being saved by grace and, and so on. I mean, they use this, this 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 terminology that you cannot earn your own salvation and so on. Um, and once once you start looking at the substance of what justification by faith alone is trying to convey. Um, and forget the actual words, I mean, or at least allow that this can be expressed in other in other ways, um, then you find, uh, you know, how should I put it, great compatibility um, uh, with what the Church Fathers taught. Now, of course, you see, this is always very difficult, because if you went back in a time machine and asked somebody, well, you know, do you believe in justification by faith alone? I mean, of course, they they wouldn't understand what you were saying. <laughs> um, you know the, the terminology wouldn't wouldn't mean anything to them because they haven't lived through that kind of debate and that kind of development. So it's difficult in, in this respect, you see, to to um, project back in time um, language and and you know the theological positions that. Uh, Weren't expressed in those terms until much later. But the, but the underlying substance, the relationship with God and Christ that we have, um, yes, certainly you can find it there. And I think, uh, you know, that, of course, is what the reformers believed. Uh, Martin Luther never imagined for one minute that he was inventing a new doctrine.
2: Mm. This is. Uh A reminder to us as we read the Reformers, we we sometimes need to uh, correct even our own misconceptions or presuppositions that, uh, well, this uh, is—and this was the charge that some Roman theologians threw at the Reformers, that, well, this is innovative, uh, that you're departing from the Church, and as you've just mentioned with Luther, uh, the Reformers saw themselves actually as recovering and even retrieving. Uh, what uh, the Church Catholic? Uh, they're you know Catholic. We mean universal. They're uh, yeah. what they taught. Now you've mentioned Luther. Um, it's not just Luther, is it? I mean, it's a number of reformers. Augustine it tends to be a favorite, though he's certainly not the only uh, the only Church Father. You've written uh, a book on Augustine um, and. Mm-hmm looked at his theology, looked at his own theological uh, developments. Maybe you could add some clarity here. Why is it that when you read a Luther or you read a Calvin, when it comes to their understanding of of grace, the sovereignty of grace, the application of grace, uh, why is it that Augustine in particular, why is it that they're so fond of him?
0: Well, I think... Uh, There are several reasons for this. Uh, One reason, of course, is that Augustine was the father of medieval uh, theology. I mean, um, whoever you read, whether it's Anselm or or Aquinas or whoever, I mean, ultimately, uh, you know, the issues they discuss, the way they discuss them, the basic foundation of it all goes back to Augustine. So it's not surprising Um, you know, that the the Reformers should be steeped in Augustine. Martin Luther, uh, in particular, uh, before the Reformation, um, when he became a friar, um, he joined the Augustinian Order, you see, which was one of the the things that they were trying to do was um, bring the teaching and and the works of Augustine back into uh, regular circulation. So there was a commitment, uh, if you like, to that, you know, from the beginning. That's one thing. Um, another thing is, uh, of course, Augustine, uh, it, more than anyone else, uh, I suppose before or since, um, ties his theological positions to his own personal experience. I mean, in that respect, he stands on the par with the Apostle Paul, um, you know, who has a similar kind of uh, approach. And I think they see this, you see, they see that the New Testament, the Pauline approach, Augustine very similar in his Confessions, uh, and so on. I mean, this is a lived experience in his life. Um, and, of course, the Reformers uh, responded to that, that, um, you know, a transformed life, a transformed mind um, was what was essential. So it's not really surprising um, that, that they should do that uh it's sometimes been said that the Reformation was a conflict between Augustine's doctrine of grace and his doctrine of the church. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that there, there, there are some things in Augustine that the Reformers uh, didn't like or, or were unable to relate to. So it's not a, a slavish devotion to Augustine in, in every respect. Um, but, you know, of course, they found in him... Um, uh, Certain things, and I suppose the most basic thing of all, uh, the total depravity of the, of, of, of the human being, uh, and the, the, our complete helplessness um, uh, in, in the sight of God—that we, we need grace. Uh, you know, it's only by, by God's reaching out to us uh, that we can draw near to Him, uh, and that's the fundamental thing. And then everything else sort of, you know, flows from that.
1: We've
2: been talking with theologian Gerald Bray, but let's take a break and hear from one of our sponsors.
1: Midwestern Seminary's Doctor of Philosophy degree program is designed to equip leaders interested in building up the church. The PhD Biblical Studies program at Midwestern Seminary provides opportunities for advanced research and preparation in theology in an environment passionate about God's primary plan for the advancement of the gospel, the local church. Choose from multiple emphases and let your advanced degree open up new opportunities for ministry in our rapidly changing world. With our modular program of study, you can remain in your current ministry setting. But We've also recently introduced the residency, an experiential component to the Ph.D. track where local doctoral students receive one-on-one coaching and mentoring and a community context in which to bolster their studies. Get your Ph.D. today for the church.
2: We're back from our break and ready to jump into a fascinating conversation with author, theologian, and Professor Gerald Bray. To our listeners, if you are wondering and, and thinking through these issues, and, and I, I would say uh, Luther's book, I mean, there's many places you could turn in Luther to, to see what Gerald is talking about, but Luther's early book, uh, the, the Bondage of the Will, his debate with Erasmus, uh, there you begin to see... Yeah. Uh, his Augustinianism coming through, and then sometimes this is a forgotten book. Though I think a, a, a very good one uh, is John Calvin's book, "The Bondage and the Liberation of the Will," and there too you will see uh, him appealing to Augustine. Of course, you can look at his uh, Calvin's Institutes and commentaries as well. Now, Gerald, you have we're talking about something like uh, the doctrines of grace or. Uh, something like justification but you have spent time much time in the doctrine of god as well Uh, everything from the doctrine of the the perfections the divine perfections of god uh, to the doctrine of the trinity and uh, in recent years there's been uh, some debates in evangelicalism some some Controversy, maybe we could even call it a crisis over the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, a classical doctrine of God um, can be foreign to evangelicals today, not always, but but sometimes it is. And you know, you you've uh, not only thought through basic trinitarianism, uh, but you've thought through some of the more complex and and difficult issues of trinitarian thought, so maybe uh and of course recently you published uh, an article uh in which you talk about subordinationism and what that uh what that means or doesn't mean and in, in some of its history um maybe you could address this for a second then what is what critique would you give then uh of the eternal functional subordination of the son uh to the father that uh some evangelicals have been um, advocating?
0: Yes, I mean, I, this is a very difficult question because uh, it's basically, I think, a problem of the way in which language is used and the way in which words have uh, maybe not so much changed their meaning, but have become, uh, have modified their meaning. You know, there's a range of, of options. Uh, has altered slightly. I mean, the, the question of subordination um, for a start, uh, in in the ancient uh, world, in, in, in classical theology, um, subordination does not mean inferiority. Um, in fact, it, subordination is only possible um, when there, when there isn't inferiority, uh, you know, it, it only has a meaning because it's basically what we would call today submission. Um, you know, it's, it's something which is within the Trinity. Uh, the persons of the Trinity submit uh, to one another. The Son submits to the Father. He, he you know, does the will of the Father. He, he doesn't. He's not forced to do it because he's some kind of inferior being. And it, there's this confusion. Um, you know, between uh, the equality of the persons and this voluntary self-giving, uh, and the notion that, you know, if you're subordinate, you must be inferior. And, of course, it, it spills over into discussion over, you know, male-female relationships. Uh, it often gets tied up with that um, on both sides. I mean, you get people who say, well, there can't be subordination because male and female are equal, uh, so subordination is wrong. And then you get the other side, which says, uh, well, uh, you know, subordination is, is what God wants and what God says, and so the woman must be, you know, is subordinate to the man, and, and that explains their mutual relations, and you just go on from there. And it becomes a dialogue of the deaf in the end, because you know, people are, are talking about two different things, and uh, the kind of people who, who insist on using the word subordination, I think, are using a word which 1500 years ago might have been okay, um, you know, to use, but today is best avoided because uh, of this uh, assumption that to be subordinate is to be inferior. Um, and I think it's just a case of how you express yourself, how you explain. And this is why I put so much emphasis always on the definition of terms. Uh, you know, what do you mean? How are you, what are you trying to convey here? Um, and because people aren't sensitive to this, they don't realize, um, you know, how they have to express themselves, uh, that they get into all this trouble. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, I suppose, you see, if you have eternal functional subordination, if by that you mean, um, you know, the, the son is eternally disposed to doing the will of the father because he has voluntarily committed himself to that, well, we don't wouldn't disagree with that. Um, but if you use the word subordination to describe it, you're likely to be miscommunicating to people and get the wrong idea.
2: Now, we, maybe we can switch gears here from some trinitarian discussions to hermeneutics uh because Uh when uh, when we talk about well and they're not unrelated are they uh when we when we because you're you're telling us uh for example that uh the way we the trinitarian conclusions we come to well in large part those are determined by our use of words and what we mean or don't mean i think you're right Uh in identifying that There seems to be uh, an incongruity or a discontinuity between the way that um, some evangelicals are using words like uh, subordination um, or eternal even, um, and uh, the way that maybe classical theology uh, defines certain terms. So that's something we need to be careful of. But it's not just in Trinitarian discussions. Um, Some of this pours over into uh hermeneutics itself. Uh now now you've written widely on this. I think one of the first books I read by you, uh at least in hermeneutics, was your your large volume on the history of biblical interpretation, very encyclopedic oh, yeah. and
0: uh-huh.
2: and uh yeah. that but that's not the only one, of course. You've given your training in the Fathers, you've contributed to the the ancient Christian doctrine series. And then uh, Mm -hmm. our listeners might be interested to hear that you have um, a commentary coming out on the pastoral epistles uh, with Uh uh, the International Theological Commentary Series with TNT Clark. Now, in light of so much of your training there, whether it be in, in hermeneutics in the fathers or just hermeneutics in general or exegesis, maybe you could comment for a second on the way that some evangelicals today are very suspicious towards any type of, of theological interpretation um, or anything that would smell uh, pre-modern in, in exegetical methods is is this type of is this type of suspicion justified have you, have you experienced this and even in some of the things you've written or how people have responded to you are there or are there uh, good reasons to, Um, to retrieve certain exegetical insights of the past.
0: Yes, I mean, again, I think we have have here to tread a fine line. I mean, um, a fundamentalism which is rooted in the ancient world, you know, which refuses to address modernity in any way, shape, or form um, is certainly not what we want. And, uh, you know, uh, that kind of approach the, the people who say that no, you've got to use modern you know techniques and all the rest of it um, they, they, they make a good point as far as that goes the other side though uh, is that um, I suppose I, I how to express this but uh, if you if you look at other other things I mean other literature for example from the ancient world I mean why do we still read it uh, why do we read Homer, for example, when nobody believes in the Illyrian gods uh, of whom he speaks? I mean, what's the uh, you know what's the attraction? Um, and uh, all these things, you see, we read Plato, we read Aristotle, and so on, but we don't accept their worldview. We don't accept uh, many things about them, and yet there's something in what they wrote, uh, you know, which uh, Retains our, our interest and our attention today, and I think the answer is that uh, I remember when I was doing my classical studies, learning you know that um, a, a, a great text is one that survives the context in which it was originally written. Um, it, it you know that's it's 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 managed to det- maybe not so much detach itself, but it has transcended um, the the circumstances. Originally produced it because it speaks to something which um, which is eternal, which is a uh, use the word eternal, but uh, you know of ongoing value and so on. And it, is, it, it strikes a chord with people who do not know the original context. Now, that, it seems to me that a lot of the problem with modern um, hermeneutics is that there's such an emphasis back to the, the original meaning, what the first readers would have heard, what the, first, the author was intending, and so on. Um, I mean, that's a legitimate perspective, of course, but we have to uh, recognize our limitations. I mean, we just don't know um, what the original readers thought. We don't know, very often, the circumstances in which these things were written, um, even when we think we do. I mean, Paul's epistles were mainly written In the church, but we only know what those problems were, but, but because because of the way he answered them, um, you know, we have to reconstruct what uh, uh, what the problem might have been. Um, and very often, I mean, there's, you know, within reason, there are a number of, of uh, possible alternatives. Well, of course, the more if you push that line, if you go, if you, you know, if you take this to an extreme. What you're really doing, and I think this is what a lot of modern biblical uh, hermeneutics does, is you're distancing the text from the modern readership because you're pointing out just how, how unrelated uh, our life is to theirs I mean, how far away it is. You, uh, you're trying to enter a, a world which cannot really be, be reconstructed. I mean, you might think you can, Uh, reconstructed, but only up to a point. And this is really missing the message. Um, uh, You know, the Bible has survived today, uh, you know, not because we know who wrote it, uh, or who wrote the various parts and what they were trying to say to the original hearers, but because it has spoken to different people, different contexts uh, for centuries. Um, And that it is really the secret. You say to yourself, well, why, why has this text continued to change people's lives? Why should something that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians nearly 2,000 years ago um, speak to people today? I mean, what's, the, you know, what, what's going on? And I think if you don't introduce the divine dimension, say, well, uh, you know, this is God speaking Um, to his people, and his people are the same now as they were 2,000 years ago, um, you you end up with a problem. I mean, you know, you're actually saying the book doesn't speak to anybody. um, Or if it does, it only only speaks in a very sort of esoteric kind of way. And I think this is what real theological interpretation is about. Um, It's about the, the relationship of human beings to God, And God to us, which has not changed uh, over 2,000 years. I mean, you and I are in the same position spiritually uh, as the first generation of Christians. And we have, in that sense, the same basic uh, needs, the same basic uh, relationship with God. And a theological interpretation will bring this out rather than, you know, go delve into all sorts of detail. which just demonstrate how different we are from the way people were back then. Hmm.
2: Some, some real insights there. uh, And, and we certainly could tease those out some, but uh, with, with time running down, uh, I think it may be uh, good to end our conversation on a more personal note. Um, Mm -hmm. Perhaps some of those who are listening, uh, not only know you as an author, uh, as, a, as a theologian, but also as a teacher. Uh, you've spent decades yeah. now uh, teaching in the classroom, and uh, many may may know you from that context. So at uh, Beeson Divinity School, I think I'm right in saying you've been there now for decades uh, and have really yeah. invested in, in Beeson and um, the students there. Many students have been sent out to churches and institutions that have sat in your classes. Um, I mean, as you look at uh, your time at Beeson, uh, and of course, we, you know, as we're recording this, um, Timothy George, who's served there for three decades, is now uh, concluding his, his uh, time there and retiring. Uh, as you look back on, on the decades you've been there, from a, per, a professor's perspective, especially, um, maybe you could shed some light on what what is it that uh, makes or even breaks sometimes an evangelical institution. You know, what what types of changes do you think? Uh, and this would be a good good word to other institutions today or in the future. What type of changes do you think are necessary when it comes to uh, preparing for? Uh, challenges, theological challenges that we face uh, now and tomorrow?
0: Well, I think the heart of it has to be uh, our own personal relationship with God. Um, what always surprises me is how few evangelicals, and I'm not just talking about theologians now, but just generally, have a mature and Deep devotional life. Um, one of the things I learned as a young Christian and committed myself to when I was ordained was a regular pattern of prayer and Bible reading uh, and so on uh, on a daily basis, morning and evening, uh, you know, every day, uh, that uh, feeding myself and, and be, being fed spiritually was just as important as being fed physically. And I can honestly say, after you know all these years, that uh, if, if for some reason or other, I miss out on this, I, I feel it as if I had missed a meal, mm. uh, you know, a, a physical meal. Um, it, it's become that ingrained in, in in me. And this is what I think I've uh, tried to inculcate in students: that the regular daily discipline uh, of prayer and and uh, learning from the scriptures, taking things in, um, you know, learning from from worship and so on, participating in this. This is the key. This is the bedrock. All the other things that we do may be very important, they may be very interesting, uh, and so on. And uh, you know, far be it from me to say to anybody that they shouldn't be doing it. But there is this common core which we, we which we share and which. We must never forget, and which is so easy to lose sight of, when John Stott wrote his book on the call, the cross of Christ, back in the 1980s. I remember he, I was talking to him about it, and uh, he said that uh, he says actually in the preface of, to the book itself that he'd looked through the literature of the previous 50 years or so, and had found only two books. Written on the cross of Christ. One was Leon Morris on the Atonement, and the other was uh, Guillebeau, Henry Gillibeau, on the cross of Christ. You know, back in the 1930s. Now, there may have been others that he overlooked, but he, but the basic point was um, very few people, um, you know, had actually concentrated on this. And I said, well, that's astonishing. And he said, yes, because he said this is, after all, the central doctrine of our faith. And you know, if people aren't talking about this, it's because it's not central in their lives and in their experience. You see, they're, they're, they're off on all kinds of other things, which may be perfectly good in themselves, but they've lost the heart of the gospel. Um, you know, they've, they've built the periphery rather than the center. And and this is why I think, uh, you know, for myself anyway, it's, it's keeping that center, keeping that foundation, um, it, you know, constantly reminding myself that it's the blood which was shed for me. It is the the broken body of Christ, and that I have have to be measured always against this. As the Apostle Paul, one of my favorite verses, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ in me, the hope of glory. And that should be the confession of every Christian. And if we can... Make this part of ourselves, if we can be crucified with Christ, uh, you know, if we could be united with him in his death uh, and in his resurrection, um, then all the rest will fall into place. And my fear is that the evangelical world loses sight of this. I mean, they talk about everything under the sun, um, and as I say, many of these things may be very good and fine and proper in themselves, but but this core uh, is in danger of being obscured.
2: We've been talking to Gerald Bray, who is a research professor of divinity at Beeson Divinity School, and you know him from uh, many of his his fine books in theology and church history. I think you know at the end of every podcast, uh, I I recommend uh, some of the books that. Uh, that have been written. But I think in light of what you just said, Gerald, um, goodness, don't we need to return to uh, the scriptures to see the cross? And uh, you've mentioned Galatians. Uh, Romans is another book that uh, has, has so influenced me. Uh, when I think of uh, Romans chapter 3, for example, and the way Paul moves from what Christ has done to what that means for our our new status in Christ and Paul is practically right. rejoicing <laughs> uh, he can't help himself yeah. and uh, by yeah. the time he comes to Romans 8 he is um, he he's rejoicing that there's there's no condemnation and of course all of this is is grounded in in what Christ has done for us and the cross is so central to that uh, I think it's uh yeah. what you've said Gerald it, it's such a it's so, it's so essential, it's, and it should be so central to, um, to what we do in church, what we believe in church, but also when we look at whether it's a, a seminary or whether it's evangelicalism as a whole, uh, we have to be brought back to the core, uh, to this center, to be reminded of, of what's most important, and that is Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection. Gerald, uh, That's it's... Fine. It's been, uh, it, as always, uh, you know. I've I've had other conversations with you in the past, and I always walk away uh, with much to think about, much to think about, and this one's no different. Thank you so much for coming on the Credo Podcast.
0: Oh, thank you very much for having me.
1: Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.